Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm your host, Barbara Fisher. Tonight I'm talking with Mike Cleland. He's been here before, so you've heard him before. Uh, he's commonly known as the Owl Guy, um, but he's also now a novelist because he just released his first novel and it's called The Unseen. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I had to look away from you while I was making the the introduction because I always, you know, mess it up. I wasn't staring. I wasn't staring. I know. You, you were looking away. I was looking away. We, we, we were all good. So I love the title, The Unseen. It's very, very um, mysterious and kind of nondescript. You can't figure out necessarily what it's about from the title. Um, and the cover is is beautiful. The cover art is beautiful. I know you did that as well. And on it you on it you put a paranormal thriller. Is that what it was? It's a little banner in the upper left corner and I did that a thousand percent on purpose because I think generationally you and I are both about the right age yep. to remember there were dime store novels. I don't know mm-hmm. what you would call them, like pulpy dime store fiction mm-hmm. things that were everywhere, like on the grocery, you know, in the grocery store as you, you know, next to the uh, candy bars and stuff like that, there would be a little twirling rack. And mm-hmm. uh, this sort of low grade book had that little ribbon and it often said like, you know, detective action or, or, or romance or or romance or something like that yeah and it would often have the price tag in there and a little logo so without that the image the image on the cover people can't see it obviously but the image on the cover is of a cowboy walking away from the what would be the camera and looks like he's walking off into the desert and that that encapsulates about the first third or the first quarter of the book there's a point where the main character dressed as a cowboy and there's a reason he's dressed as a cowboy he went to a gallery opening and he was in a western in a town and he he was wearing the same clothes he was at at the gallery opening which was sort of a cowboy outfit and he kind of laments that uh, like oh this is a this is like a costume somewhere in the first few pages he kind of he he goes through the you know like i'm i'm dressed in a stupid costume and so he's stuck in that stupid costume of a cowboy for the for the first <laughs> half a quarter of the book and um uh but if without the little paranormal thriller thing in the corner, it looks like uh, a cowboy story. Yeah, it looks. So like, I had to, I had uh, to put that in there. Yeah. Yeah, either a cowboy comic book or one of the pulp novels that you know had gunfighters in them. Um, Zane Gray. And, yeah. Zane Gray wrote the good versions of those. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but yeah, my my grandfather had a, just piles of those pulp novels spy novels and oh yeah there are and, some sleazy uh, romance ones too yeah, oh so god lots yes of, lots of yes yeah um, sort of science fiction-ish kind of but not really yeah um so yeah it was kind of like the old amazing stories but it was novels and sure yeah that that little banner i also remember it from gold <laughs> key comics oh yeah from, from back in the day and that was actually the first thing I thought of when I looked at it, or the Daw paperbacks that were the fantasy and science fiction uh, books that had the yellow Daw label on it. 
Sure. Uh, and they had the spines were always yellow. So, you know, half yeah. of my my bookcase as a kid was, you know, yellow. <laughs> and <laughs> With, Penguin Classics, even like the yes, high-end Penguin had, Classics. had the yes. little penguin up in the corner of that little logo there. So, With the so orange spines. The, the story originally came, was meant to be a comic book. Like I originally, I, my idea was fully that I was going to do a graphic novel. I was going to do it all myself. I was going to write it, illustrate it, do the lettering. And I had this idea. And, and what I did is I wrote like a treatment for the ideas just to organize mm -hmm. my thoughts. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty tight, thorough treatment. And then I, I did a few pages, which are on my, on my blog, a few pages of the, um, the proposed, they're kind of deep. I got to bring those back up to the surface now that I'm kind of using the blog to promote the book somewhat. But um, so I did full pages, just kind mm -hmm. of, you know, here at this point in the story, I want to, and I kind of just wanted to know and capture a style and a color scheme. So the color scheme on the book cover is very much the color scheme of the comic book pages that I was really heavily, not so much yellow, but let's say uh, um, paper bag brown. You know, okay. so that kind of tannish yellow, sienna, paper, or, or, light or paper sienna. bag. Yeah, that paper bag. Yeah, Boy, that's right. You were you. We had this conversation before. I would never say sienna. Yes. I would just say light brown, dark brown, or you know, like yeah, paper, yeah. And no, I'm sitting paper here grocery going, bag but brown. The, but which pigment? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you do, we use, if you're using gouache, it's a different pigment. If you're using acrylic, it's a True. different pigment. If you're using True. oil paints and stuff, so. Um, but yeah, the, so that paper bag kind of color. And even if you look at the cover closely, it's all speckled and looks dirty and kind of grungy. I wanted it to look kind of old. Um, yeah, but the comic book when I was doing the comic book, oh dear lord, I got so stymied. I got so like like dead ended. Like oh, this is going to be a lot more work than I thought. Mm -hmm. And and I re reached out to a friend of mine in the comic book industry. Do you know who Christopher Knowles is? He runs a website yes. called The Secret Son. Yes, I, Christopher I do. Knowles and I are pretty close, and he and I worked in New York at the same time. I, we never knew each other while we were in New York, but um, so he did a lot of comic book stuff, and I called him up and I basically said, what's up? Like, if I'm going to, I'm like, got this idea. And he was like, oh, don't you dare. Don't you dare try to do a comic book all by yourself. Like nobody can do it. Yeah. Like you need to work as a team. You need to work. We hire someone. Someone's got to do the lettering. Someone's got to do the inking. Someone's got to do the pen, mm -hmm. the coloring. And, and I just got so demoralized. And I was like, I just screw it. I put this thing on a, a shelf. Metaphorically, I put it on a shelf. It was just a file hidden on my computer. And, uh, and that would have been around 2010, so maybe 2011. So he's been, been sitting in there for going around, going well, it got published and it was going around and around. So I picked it up again, probably a decade later. So 2021 or so. And, and so a full decade, it was like just locked away. And I, and I was kind of, I finished one book. I had finished the book, which was called, um, hidden experiences, or excuse mm -hmm. me, hidden experience. And I, I uh, I just I just like stumbled on. It. I was like, hey, let me read the let me. And I read the treatment. I was like, you know, this is there's something to this. I gotta I gotta pursue this. And it was and I and I said, I'm just gonna do this. As, I've written some books now. I'm gonna just mm -hmm. do this as a as a fiction book. Oh my god! I spent one summer. I think it was like the summer of 2019, trying. Like I spent three months. Oh, I got nowhere. I got exactly nowhere. I felt like I wrote and wrote and wrote and rechanged everything and worked and oh, it was the most frustrating thing imaginable. And then I just and then I pulled it out again around 2020, and said like, I worked on it. And then there was a point. There's a point when I put too much work into it, mm -hmm. 
like you know what I mean like you like the boat that's going across the ocean where it's like oh no you can't turn back you're like so yeah yeah and and I was kind of at that point I was like oh now I gotta finish it and and that was like like I never trusted the story like I was writing and writing and writing and writing and I never fully trusted the story until I shared it with a few friends and said hey can you just give this a read and they were like oh you got to make this happen and there wasn't much to the story at that point there was still a lot to write and and um, so I learned a lot of lessons as far as writing fiction. And I mean, don't wing it is one one lesson I learned. I, I should have planned it out a little more cleanly before I started. So, um. yeah, I I get the don't wing it. The only time I've been able to do fiction and wing it is short fiction, which for me is generally not even that short. Um, but that's the only time that I've been successful with winging it when I've worked on. Uh, story cycles or novels with my husband. We tried winging it. It was a bad thing to do. Ooh, yeah. It did you not have a nice tight outline. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. And for the longest time, I was weird about outlines because I would make an outline and it would be detailed and tight. And then I felt like I wrote the story and I didn't want to write it anymore. And that was for the, for the longest time. I don't know why that was. I, I don't know, and I don't know when that stopped, but it did eventually stop. Now I'm a fan of an outline. Yeah, the the, the index cards in the corkboard is a pretty pretty low tech solution. Yeah, so, um, but it was it was a little crazy making when I was in the middle of it because I I painted myself into so many corners and had to get myself out of corners. The plot. Uh, so I was oh, here. Let me just as a as a I may um like. It's going to be this is going to be a tough book to talk about because there's a lot of twists and turns in the plot, mm-hmm. and I don't want to do too many spoilers. I don't mind a little bit, but we've, but we've got to be careful not to like. Yeah, yeah. There's some twists. And I was going to let plot. you lead on what you. Want oh, to I'm do. open to talking about anything, and then but we can kind of. I think we can kind yeah, of dance we'll, around. We'll talk the, around the it. Plot points. Josh yeah. and I managed to not give much away, so we can do it. Yeah. So that's funny. So Josh's story. And I can't from I can't remember exactly where it was in the book. So the, my story involves a painter, mm-hmm. and so he's doing paintings. He's an artist. He's kind of going through a existential crisis, and but he's kind of like, oh, my paintings they don't mean anything to me anymore. I'm just like, oh, I'm giving up. And and uh, and there's a point in one in Josh's story where there's a painting on a wall in an office. Mm-hmm. And he comments on it, and he gives the name that the painter has a pseudonym in this story. The painter's name is John, John Wilson, and the pseudonym is Artemis. So Art Amiss, mm-hmm. Arthur Amiss, he goes by Arthur Amiss, but Art Amiss is how he signs the paintings. And nobody knows his real name in the little town and such like that. So, but his, so I thought that was such a nice little. Yeah. So he put the he put the painting in the one of one of the fictional author or the fictional painter from my book has a painting. In a fictional office in, in Joshua Cutchin's book, yeah. And thematically, the the books are similar. You know, you have that was you have they were being written at the same artist. time. Yeah. yeah, and then his is about a musician, a guitarist, and, and Josh is a tuba player. Yes, so yes. he is a musician. So he's speaking yes. from authority on mm-hmm. that one. Yeah, and and you're an artist, so. And that, but I don't. I did. Pay, I have done very few paintings in my life. So, you know, the the paintings in the story. I, 
talked about them being big and these mesas and these Western art. So I lived in Jackson Hole for a while, and that's the that's like Jackson Hole and Santa Fe are the two towns out west that are known for the art the art galleries and the art culture. Mm-hmm. And I lived in Jackson Hole, and and uh, I also you know where I also I lived in Soho for almost ten years. So that's a big art place. That too. was oh that was the center of the art world, and so anything after Soho. I went, like Soho, that was like, and this is in the 1980s, which is like ancient history. Oh now. yeah, that was. But that was. But it yeah. was like the epicenter. Like I was, I felt pretty confident saying like that was the center of the art world. And yeah. it's like coming home from work, I could get off the subway and I would just pop into some gallery I've never been in before. It was like the most gratifying, joyous chapter of my life for that kind of creative. New York's got this dynamism, this energy of, of just like. Oh, you're there in the center. It doesn't have it to the same degree anymore. Maybe I've changed and the city's changed, but but uh so afterwards, I know this is gonna sound sort of crass, but like afterwards, anywhere else in the world just felt like, like Jackson Hall, like, oh, we've got this big art market. And I was like, Yeah, this it's basically all just pictures of I should be really careful, but pictures of like <laughs> elk on, you know, in beautiful sunsets yeah. and stuff like that. And it wasn't didn't stray much from that. <laughs> yeah. So I so when I was and I paint, I'm going to use his name. His name is Bill Shank. He goes by Billy Shank lately. And he's probably, good grief, he's older than me, so he must be in his late 60s or early 70s at this point. And he's still at it. He's still painting these paintings. But I spent a summer painting his paintings. He did these kind of pop art paint-by-number paintings. You could look them up, Bill Shank or Billy oh, Shank. Yeah. S-C-H-E-N-C-K, I think. And um, and the little image on the back of the book, oh, I should be careful, was a little bit of, of a hat tip to the type of work he does. There's a mesa, just a, a kind of muted mesa on the back of the book. and But I painted his paintings where he would sit on the phone and, and he was he mixed the paint. And he would mm-hmm. say, you know, oh, this purple goes here and this yellow goes here and this orange goes here. And then he would like tap the brush exactly where he wanted. But he would use, he would take his own photographs, which were, his photographs were beautiful. And then he would take a picture. He'd go down to the desert southwest and take a picture of a mesa or a sunset or a vista, and then, and then kind of project that onto the canvas and use a mm-hmm. special pen that didn't intersect with the the oil paints. It's the only time I ever worked in oil paints. Wow, they were really beautiful. They really smelled nice and rich, rich color. But I would, and then I would paint them and just oh. fill in the colors. And I kind of got good at it. You know, I was like, oh wait a minute, he made a mistake here. If this, like, if the branch from this from the cottonwood tree is here and the mesa is in the background there and the orange of the sky is there, I was like, oh, so it was. But yeah. um, but but I that was definitely, I was definitely kind of using him as a starting point for the for the for the style of the painting. Let's say you know, I mean, obviously it's a book; you never see the paintings, but I wanted to he try to describe them. them. Yeah well enough they're they're described enough that i can i can see them pretty well yeah. in my head so. and then what i wanted to they were big i just wanted yeah. like this thing they were big and he would just you know this he was the artist was shrinking psychologically his his he was in the in the very opening of the book he he finds himself early on and before the book gets too far oh here's a bit of feedback so josh read the book when it was still in its uh did you read the book in print or did i did you read the the, um, I read it in print. I tried okay, to read it. You sent it to me as digitally, a, uh, yeah, digitally, and I tried to read it, but I had just started the first read on Josh's novel to edit it, and I was finishing a book by another author in editing it. So when you gave it to me, my brain was already like 
into places. And so I got right almost to the end of the first third with the desert parts. And yeah. and I was like, I I, I I I don't know what to say. I can't I it, there were too many images from Josh's book in there. Mm-hmm. And on top of that there was there was, you know, nonfiction in there. And I was like, oh God, I don't think I can. So when you sent me the print book, that's when I read it and I read it in like a day. It didn't take it's that's not great like to, it's, that's great to hear. Good. It, it's not like it's like shallow or anything. I don't want anybody to think that's what it means. It means I couldn't put it down. Um, you know, I didn't cook dinner for people. <laughs> oh, right, and let them starve. Great for you. Uh, you know, we had pizza. That's what happened. Uh, so the book I, is. I, I yeah. worked really hard to make it race along. Like I yeah, really, it does. I really wanted it to not feel. I wanted it to feel like a like a I don't want to get all Dan Brown, but I wanted it to feel like a modern thriller where yeah. it races along. And then yeah. at the same time I wanted to level up depth in the character, the especially the main character to have to be like fully fleshed out and and I like I wanted people to be rooting for the main character. Yeah. 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 And um so oh that's great. And then the uh so so the first roughly quarter of the book, the character walks into the desert. And, and I never quite explain why. You know, I had, a, I had a friend in New York City. I went to NYU's film school, and a friend of mine, his name is Bruce. And he, I remember him saying one time, he was like, he watched some movie, and it was, it was like a low-grade movie. Like, not a low-grade movie, but a low-budget movie. So it wasn't a mm-hmm. big... And it was... Everyone loved this movie in New York City at the time. And New York City had this art thing, and he just was kind of like, ah, you know what they did? They did a thing where it was cinema. And he, like, he was there, and, and he just explained, like, what he was doing. I can't remember what the movie was. But he was, like, he was... I remember him being so annoyed, basically. Like, oh, there he was. Like, he, he, like, explained what he was doing as he was doing it, like, the voiceover... And I was like, mm, yeah. it's cinema. You just show it. That's the that's the joy of cinema. So I would I mm-hmm. tried to take that on in a way where I saw the the movie in my mind, and I was like, I'm going to explain as little as possible. Like that was like was I'm going to explain like I was his emotions are fully on rolling through mm-hmm. the first person narrative, but I wanted to explain as little as possible. So I really yeah, he, wanted to he did leave people in yeah, the dark. He didn't yeah. have these. He didn't have these big deep thoughts. He didn't get philosophical. He had emotions and he felt them. And you also have him going through the daily search for water, you know, brashing mm-hmm. out his food because he didn't mean to do this, really. And the reason in a way the that, reason gets gets explained yeah, much later gets, in the book, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if, if at the beginning you're sitting there going, dude, hey, 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 no, you shouldn't, what do you, wh- turn around, turn around, you, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, and then he gets, oh, he gets so far, and then he knows he can't turn around. There is a point, and that's the only place where he kind of has an explicatory little bit, and it's like, oh, you know, I've gone too far to go back. So I guess I'm just going to go forward. Yeah. And, you know, there was a part of me going, you're never too far to go. Okay, maybe you are too far to go. Well, where are you going? You don't even know where you are. He, so he, he so how uh, do you know you've gone too far? Okay. 
I think it was <laughs> he had a, he had a very little bit of food in the, as the story began. So, but he, mm-hmm. um, but so Josh, like the people who are reading the book, especially the digital book. Digital is kind of funny because I guess you can flip pages forward, but it's really easy in a print book. Just like well, what's going to happen here ten pages later? What's going to happen like near the end of the book? You can just open it up and, but um, and so well to be fair to people, um, that bit in the beginning, one woman read it. Her name is Althea. She's she's been super helpful over the years with just feedback for me. And um, so she read it. I didn't realize she bought it. She said, I read your book. And I my, the question I was asking at the beginning, I don't ask it anymore when people are reading the book. This book's been out like four months now. And uh, But it's beginning when people are reading it. My very first question was like, what the part in the desert at the beginning? Did that, did that work? Like, I was like, I didn't know what to trust as far as the story. And, mm-hmm. and she said that part in the beginning when he's walking in the desert, when John's walking in the desert, did that work? And she got back to me and she said, that was a ritual as old as time. And I was like, oh, you got it. She got it. Like she got what I was hinting at. And I never quite said Mm -hmm. it, but I was implying something along those big, big grand ways, but I didn't want to say it in a big grandiose way. And um, so when Joshua Cutchen read the book, he got back to me and he said, "Um, on the back of the book, this was really good feedback. This is like, this wasn't like, this was perfect feedback. He said, on the back of the book and on the thing in, on the, in the little book description on Amazon, you got to say that he gets somewhere. Like he's, you're like mm-hmm. reading the book and I'm like, is this guy ever going to get anywhere? Like this, you can see the little, it's like a big fat book and it's like, is he mm-hmm. ever going to get anywhere? And so, yes, he does get somewhere. So about a quarter of the way into the, to the book, um, he arrives at a small town and the small town has got a, mystery to it and i always i described the town as i was working on it people would ask me what i'm doing and i'm like well i'm working on this book and this guy walking in the desert and he shows up in this town and i always described the town as um a twilight zone town i said the i said the story was a combination of the x-files twilight zone and twin peaks mm-hmm. and that's kind of roughly close but i the thing that uh, what i wanted it twin peaks was a little uh stilted right you know how the dialogue was a little awkward and stilted and all the characters were kind of like these kind of uh oh golly shucks gee whiz kind of cartoon characters i wanted the story to be i wanted the story so here's i wanted believable characters to come to terms with an unbelievable story. Like the story gets very weird at times, but I wanted the characters oh, yeah. to be believable. Like, you know, they're struggling, like what is happening? And and they're asking that, you know, of each other and themselves and such as they as they get deeper and deeper into the story. And and I also, this is here, I, I, the, there's a, the story is folded into part one and part two. Here, I've got the book right in front of me. So I can, oh, part two is on... Um, Page one thirty six, and it's a three hundred and fifty four page book. So someone can—that's roughly a third of the way in. So it's a two part story, and that it really the the tenor texture flavor of the story really changes when it goes from part one to part two. And what I I didn't even really knowingly do this. I kind of knew there would be a change, but part one was the internal dialogue the kind of mm-hmm. w- of of john the main character and then part two 
is a detective story, 100% a detective story, where John is now saying, I've got to solve this mystery. Like, so he kind of is this victim at the beginning, and then he steps in as the detective, where Mm -hmm. where the mystery is himself in a way. We're like, why, what is happening with me? And, um, and I think anyone who has been through, oh, let me say this too. This is a very, this was a very bold thing for me to do. This is a UFO book. This is a book about UFO contact. This is a book about a guy struggling with UFO contact, called it abduction, whatever term you want to use, but I never use the word UFO. There's no UFOs in the book. There's, there's never mentioned the word abduction. So I, I, I would just, I've gotten, I'm going to be careful. I wanted, I was so, I'm not bored. I'm not, I should be careful what I say. I am not bored of the story because these people, real people are having these experiences. But I was, I am bored of the way it has been portrayed in documentaries and fiction. And I wanted to just strip all of the UFO stuff out and then leave the mystery and, and, the, and the personal struggles of, of, a, of a handful of folks struggling with this mystery in this small little town. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I think is, is absolutely genius about it is that it is an experience or story, but you don't make anything obvious. Like I think that people who aren't well-versed in the paranormal at all they would read it and yes there are paranormal bits and and pieces in there that are a little more obvious but there is nothing like big silver disc coming down Mm -hmm. aliens coming in grabbing people dragging them around you know there's none of that and yet what is there are the feelings and the confusion mm-hmm. when you have a memory that pops up that has nothing to do, you think, with what you actually remember. I, I don't know if everybody does this. I, I, I hope everybody does this. But even if it's not UFO stuff, there are memories that are inside of us that are locked until something happens in the present that jiggles the lock Mm -hmm. and sometimes pops it open. And then fully formed out of your psyche comes this memory. And then you have to put it in with the memories that you already knew about. You have to put it in there and make it make sense. Because if you can't make it make sense, then you're going to be... It's like having a, a loose tooth. You can't help but poke at it, you know, if it's mm-hmm. not the way it's supposed to be. And that's that's what I think you portrayed really, really well, was that there there were the memories that that the characters knew they had, and then there were these memories that started coming out because of something in the present circumstance sort of shakes them loose, and then they, they start you know, crawling out of the darkness. And, and then it's like, oh, but but what, what do I do with that? And that's the eternal question, isn't it? You know, we have these experiences. Sometimes we don't remember them. And then, they, then a, a piece of memory that makes no sense pops out 
and then you have to you have to square it away with the rest of what you're pretty sure you know about yourself. Exactly. And sometimes it turns out you don't really know as much about yourself as you think you know. Yeah, and that so I spent like like I I had m- memories of my own experiences as a child. And I could tell those around a dinner table and around a campfire and just, you know, on a long drive or something. I could play I could have story time and tell, "Hey, you want to hear some interesting stories? Here's what happened to me when I was 12." And I could tell a missing time story and I could tell a, you know, missing time story with a with an associated bright orange light in the sky, which I didn't, you know, which was just felt like a, it felt like the sky lit up orange. The person I was with later said he saw a UFO, and I was like, I never saw a UFO, and I just immediately thought he was lying. Like, no, I saw the sky turned orange. He says, oh, we saw a ship with lights and everything. I'm like, I never saw that, and and that was really distressing for me. Mm-hmm. And and I could tell those stories, and and, the, and wow. I started reading UFO books and, and there's within the literature, there's like these little, this little checklist. And I knew the checklist and I fit, I had everything checked off in my own direct experience, but wow, I was not going there. I was denying it, denying it. So there was a, there was a, between 2006 and 2013, what is that? That's about seven years, seven years. So there was seven years where I was, oh my gosh, I was not at peace. Oh, mm-hmm. and I was struggling, struggling, struggling. So the character of John, that turmoil that I tried to that I tried to express in the in the narrative, that was one hundred percent me. I met you know like the experiences weren't quite the same, but I wanted the that emotional um, being off balance, being so off balance mm-hmm. and not trusting reality. There's very early on in the story. There's some stuff is. So, so for folks who don't know who I am, I, I, I have a website and I started writing about UFOs and owls because I had some owl experiences and I put it on a blog and then eventually that blog got a lot of hits for a while and I was interviewed. And so what on podcasts, I had my own podcast for a while. And so if any, and right at the top of my website, it says, I want to hear your owl stories. So for the last 2009 to 2014 years or so for the last 14 years i have been at the receiving end of people sending me their owl accounts and i'm grateful for this and it's in the thousands like a really mm-hmm. a plus kind of stories of of owls and it's not so much even ufos anymore like long ago i realized oh this is like this is a lot more than just UFOs. It's the owls are associated yeah. with like a, a sort of paranormal vibe. And um, so it, in the introduction, here, I'll read it. I'll just read it. This inter- the introduction of the book. Like I say, author's note, this book is dedicated to everyone who has reached out to me with their stories. It would be impossible for me to truly express the depth of my gratitude. So much of what has been shared with me has made it into the pages of this book. No account has, no account has, no accounts have been presented exactly as told. They've been stretched and changed to fit the narrative, but their flavor and mood saturate this tale. This includes my own stories. As an author, I have worked hard to honor 
these intangible experiences. So what I told people is, like if, like early on when people were reading the book, I kind of would hand the book off or I would send the book out or I would send a, a digital copy out for people to review it and stuff. And I would I kind of say, you know, uh, like the weird stuff, if you get to a really weird part in the book, uh, it probably happened. And it probably happened to me. <laughs> so so like some of the weirder <laughs> stuff in the book was like, oh, you know, I've heard that story a lot. Like, like, and I, so I gave the book to my sister or my sister read it. I didn't make, I didn't ask her to read it. She said, Mike, I bought your book. And I'm like, oh no, yikes. My sister is not like, and, and she read it in a couple days. She did totally the thing. She's like, oh, we were out at dinner and we were at some people's friends. All I wanted to do is she said, this was, felt great for me. Her, her to say, I just wanted to get home and find out what happens next. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and then after she read it, she's like, Mike, we got to talk. Like, and then we oh. talked. And it's like, what happened here? And it's like, well, if you read the UFO literature, this is something that's commonly reported. She's like, it is? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it is. I'm like, well, you're kidding. No, no, oh, that's all over the UFO literature. <laughs> there's a, so there's a story of a, of a, let's say, a false pregnancy. And then this woman realizes she had a child. And this shows up in the story. And, and I'm like, oh, and I've heard that a lot, like a lot. And, and she was just like, yikes, it's super creepy detail. And it was, you know, mm-hmm. so there's creepy parts of the book, but, um, and it's meant to have that kind of, it's not a horror movie. Excuse me, I called it a movie. It's not a horror story, but I would call it more of a thriller or a, or a drama, let's say. And, um, but, uh, but that was really interesting to have to explain things to my sister. Cause she was just baffled at a couple points. Like, why did they say that? Why did they do that? And it's like, oh, that's all over the literature. There's a point early in the story where I which is based a 100% a real experience where the character John is, he walks off into the desert and he's like, oh no. Like he reaches in his pack, he's looking for a sunblock. And I was like, I don't have any sunblock. I'm going to get fried out here. Like I can't, I got to turn around. Mm-hmm. And he takes a few more steps and there's a bottle of sunblock right in front of him. And that really happened to me. And in, in a little bit, it's actually the story I have is more interesting, the real story, but but that was a 100% a real story that happened to me directly. And it, and it happened in before I was really had the owl experiences that led to me looking in. So it was really early on in in mm. my, in, in my like personal search for what, but that was very early on, but when I was, before I started to play detective on myself, let's say. Wow. Yeah, that's one of my one of my uh favorite little bits was oh, I don't have sunscreen. Oh, and then I thought, "Oh, you're going to go back, right? It's probably a good idea. You should probably go back." And then <laughs> I wanted you, you to know, be worried about him, yeah. So. Yeah, and then boom, there it is and I'm like, "I guess he's not going back." <laughs> oh, and then right. he's and then All he has right. then he has a uh, he has a uh, he says, "I'm uh like I'm going to freeze tonight." It's first sunset. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Oh no, sun's gonna go down." He's like, "There was a really that was a really tough thing for me to write because in that scene, the sun is going down. He's all alone, and there's this magic point in the night in the desert. The sun, when the sun is out, it's like it's almost so bright. It's like ugh, everything is just bleached out. It's like it's like watching your TV set with all the knobs like turned wrong. Yeah. TV set. I'm using ancient language here, um, and." And then when the sunset happens, all of a sudden, all the tans turn to orange and all the all the grays turn to pink. And and he's like, whoa, like, wow, it's beautiful. And then at the same breath, he says, I'm going to die tonight because it's going to be so cold. Mm-hmm. And then he he gets hit in the in with a big what he, I called a black mass. 
and this thing just rolls, this big thing hits him, and it was a tarp just rolling around the desert. And I've spent a lot of time in the desert. That's exactly the kind of thing you would find out there is a big old tarp that blew off of somebody's truck or something. And so then he has a then he essentially has a way to wrap himself up at night. And that happens it's like, right as he has the thought. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 the environment basically the way I saw that first part of the story when he, you know, goes off into the desert without thinking is he was meant to go there. Mm. He was pushed to go there. It was time for him to go there. And the direction that he chose was predetermined. And every time he thought that he wasn't prepared, which he wasn't, because it was just sort of, I'm going to walk into the desert. Uh, Every time. And he'd think of a thing, oh, sunscreen. The desert gave it to him. And that's the way I see it, is it was the the desert itself is a character in that first part of the book. And later on, because of course, you know, there there's more it's desert adjacent and then he goes back out. They go back in a few times, yeah. They leave that little town a few times and go back into the desert. Yeah. So So I think of the desert as kind of a an overarching character as well. And you know, he every time he thinks he's about to die of thirst, something happens, you know, and it, I, that was part of the, the excitement in reading it when I finally got to read it with a clear head and not all scattered trying to keep too much information on in my head. And <laughs> it was like, oh, I want to know what's going to happen because, you know, the desert keeps reaching out to him. Hmm. Yeah, and yeah. You know, it was it was very, it was very like, almost like a a journey of the body and the mind and the spirit, and there is a point where it becomes a typical, well, not typical, an an underworld journey. Oh yeah, there, oh, there yeah, is a yeah. part where it it's a literal underworld. That happens. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So and they have to. They revisit that underworld a few times. They have to go back to the underworld and back to the mm-hmm. underworld and back to the underworld. Oh, yeah. And that was that was. There's a book by Michael Harner called Cave and Cosmos. Mm-hmm. That book was a huge inspiration for the Desert Journey, where Michael Harner researched shamans. He also wrote a book called The Shaman's Way. And the Cave and Cosmos. There's kind of a academic um, expose or, or study of the of the shaman the shamanic journey, which is the lower mm-hmm. world or the underworld, the middle world, or our that's where we our, live our form of present reality, world. our material reality, or and then the upper world. And so we're in the middle world. There's an upper world and there's a lower world, and um, the. The, the book itself is just a collection, just just story after story. He would just play the drum, boom, 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 boom. He would do these retreats, and people would just, he would play the butt drum, boom, 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 boom. He would give a little feedback to people, just go on your journey, just tell me, tell what happens afterwards. And he would record all these people's journeys. Wow! They were as trippy yeah. as you get. Trippy as you get, just meeting your spirit animals and getting taken into a cave or getting taken up the chimney. and But... I wanted to capture that 
that that tone, that feeling, that mood mm-hmm. of the shamanic journey in John's real life quest. I mean, he was, I don't want to give a little bit away, but, you know, voices of ghosts from the past kind of mm-hmm. helping through some of the darker points. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, so those were all based on, on that Michael Harner book, which had a huge, huge impact on me. It was so interesting because I'm, I'm coming at this, like I've been digging into this mystery, right? So the UFO, if you just watch late night documentaries, this is sort of a cable TV thing. If you just streamed, <laughs> I keep on talking like I'm from like 1985 or something, which I guess I am, but um, it like there's, if you like the streaming videos of, of documentaries of the UFO abduction lore, you would just think it's people getting taken from their cars, put on a table on a flying saucer, creepy shit happens to them, and then they get dropped off and they're they're just traumatized. Right. And, you know, that's part of it. That is sure part of it. But wow, I talk to I talk to people all the time. I never hear the story of them being on a table. A little bit. I do hear it. But it is like in the grand scheme of things, their life is unfolding mm-hmm. with this grand shamanic journey kind mm-hmm. of this dream logic and and it's a struggle because like real life is playing out like we're told what real life should be i'm saying we because i feel like i'm in this like this little club like we are told what real life should be a real or what reality should be and from my, our direct experience and i'll just speak for myself from my direct experience my real life events do not match what the my junior high school science teacher told me how reality works yeah so there's a huge tension there like you know my mm-hmm. sister doesn't understand she tries to she's great and she's been supportive but she can't she doesn't understand and and so this book was an attempt to not write a non-fiction book of study of ufo contact this book was an attempt to write a fiction book that encapsulates the struggle and the mood I think you did a, a great job with that um, because, well, I think it was not this past week. I think it was maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I did an episode that uh, I got in touch with a shamanic practitioner who has the same teacher that I had just at different time periods. And we talked about UFO abduction as this a shamanic. Alexandra? Yes, yes. yes. Alexandra. I, I wrote it right in my page. It's the only note I have. Alexandra abduction UFO. That's I got a blank piece of paper. That's the only three words on this piece of paper here. So yeah, it keep was going. Alexandra. Keep going. And uh, because I, I I keep reading the I avoided UFO abduction literature for a long time um, because a lot of it, especially if there was. Uh, hypnotism involved a lot of the stories started sounding the same you know and and part of it I could very easily see had to do with the hypnotist because even if you try really hard not to ask a leading question you're gonna do it eventually oh yeah it's gonna start and then you're gonna get these UFO abduction is this. And I always was like, you know, 
I don't like the idea of the hypnotist like shaping the narrative. It should be the experiencers shaping the narrative and you should always ask open-ended questions. It should always be, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you hear? You know, and trying to get them to expand their sensory memory mm-hmm. and pull it into the forefront of the brain. To me, that's the way it should work. Of course, you know, I'm not a hypnotist or a psychologist, so you know, and take I've it with a grain of salt, yeah. huh? And I've been hypnotized a handful of times to to look into these experiences of my own, and and I this it's hypnosis. Hypnosis is. Have you been hypnotized and like? Self hypnosis only. Okay, so I've been I've sat on the couch and had the had the trained hypnotherapists like you know take me down the stairs deeper and deeper and deeper, and and I've had uh, uh, well I had a a past life regression hypnotherapy session where I went to look into a past life to come to terms with uh, which I've been very open about in my in my writing and stuff like that my history of depression oh that's another thing this is a book about depression where I never wrote the word depression once oh yeah like, but the yeah. experience is right there out in yeah, the open but I never said that I never said the word depression I just wanted to like in and, and um but so I so this was the 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 session was completely absurd like mm-hmm. I, I like a story came up like of me in the 1920s and like my I was I was an arrogant artist this is so I'll give an encapsulation of it I've talked about this many times so I was an arrogant artist in the 1920s in England and and the hypnotherapist said where are you from and I said I'm from Murray and she said we moved on and there is no Murray in England there's a Murray in Scotland though and it's spelled differently than you would spell it if you look it looks like it's spelled Moray but it's pronounced Murray and so, uh, and that took a little bit of digging for me to find that. But um, so, and as a young artist in the 1920s at art school, I was very flamboyant. I was very arrogant. I was very proud of myself. And I was beaten blind mm. by my own father in this past life regression. And then my own father was so guilty. I was blind. I could no longer be an artist. My own father drank himself to death, basically committed suicide using alcohol as a poison and and it was so gut-wrenching the emotions that welled up in this thing and i cried and i cried and i cried and then when i came out of the hypnosis session and the 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 therapist her name is lorraine flaherty and i sat up in her chair she counted down from 10 and now you are back and i'm like sat up and i'm like i'm cured like it was so clear like like and i have not had any issues of clinical depression since that day i've had like down days where it like rains a few days in a row or something goes wrong and i'm like you know i'm bummed out but that's not clinical depression so no it's a totally I, different thing so so there's like a there's a clinical use of depression or excuse me a clinical use of hypnotherapy to to treat a malady like depression it worked mm-hmm. for me and and uh and then so i've also had the issue of going being taken back to ufo type events i tried it a bunch of times and could not go under with a bunch of different hypnotherapists barbara lamb and leo sprinkle and then bud tried to bud hopkins mm-hmm. I, he hypnotized me and i tried to go back and like i saw a few things clearly and i described some things clearly but i nothing no new information came back that wasn't already in my that i already talked about or written about or knew about and remembered consciously this is a funny little story. So Bud 
like I had a memory of it felt like I woke up in the middle of the night and it felt like I was being watched. I feel like I'm being watched. And I lived in a loft, so I was right up in the pitch of the roof. Like my bedroom was right in the pitch of the roof. Like it almost could only stand up in the in the, in the middle. And the mattress was low on the floor. And uh, I said, who's watching you? Who do you feel is watching you? And I kind of said, bud, I'm talking to you. Like, uh, like you're asking the question. I'm All I picture is the gray aliens. And I said it in the hypnosis session. Not quite. <laughs> I, I basically said exactly that. But you know, who do you think is watching you? And I'm like, but I came to you for help. Like, like it's the gray aliens. Let's like, like, that's what I'm seeing. And was that a leading question? Who was watching you? Maybe, but it was, but it was funny that I was well aware of, I don't You're, think it was a leading question the way he asked it, but no, I knew like, I no. like, well, I'm like on your couch, you know, <laughs> I, I, your, your personality just came out with that sense of humor bit and the sarcasm. And you said, well, who else is going to be watching me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember exactly how I said it, but it was pretty close to that. And then, uh, and then I, I um, it's funny. I've had. I'm going to be. I'm not going to use any names. But two hypnotherapists. I I did one hypnotherapy session, and then the exact same story came out with another hypnotherapy session. These two therapists. They're very. Their names are well known. But and then one of them said, to them, "How did that go with the other one?" So I went, "Great, really interesting. How, what what kind of techniques did you use?" And I said some things that were like, you know, this therapist said, you know, like I had a question. They were just like, just ask the being, ask the creature, and I would. And like, did I ask them in real time in that place, or was I in some sort of mystical, multi-dimensional realm where I could tap into that other thing and that they, the being could answer? And often the answer was like in a little riddle or something like that. It was never pragmatic information. And so then when I told that to the other person, they were like, hmm, hmm. And I said, you know, it was really, it was, it was helpful just to, mm-hmm. to feel that. Like, so I'm, I feel like I'm, I don't trust the information that emerged through hypnosis. I don't trust that past life regression. I don't think I was in art school in the 1920s in England. I might've been, there's no way to prove it. I didn't have it. I mean, I got no name or anything except for a town named Murray or county, it's a county actually in Scotland, I think. And then, um, uh, so I, you know, like I don't trust it. So that's so like, I'm left in the dark in a way, but a story emerge, emerges, right? So like, how to say this? Like if you wrote a fiction story and someone's walking down the path and there's an old crone or something like that, this old, old woman, you know, like on the side of the trail, and she stops you on the trail and tells you a fable, and then you continue on. Like, you probably want mm-hmm. to pay attention to that fable. It's probably not real. Yeah. It's like, yeah, a, it's a fable. But, it's like, a, but... But it has meaning. It, the story has power, yes. There's, there's, there's stories that are true, and then there are true stories. A true story is one that has an emotional truth to it. That's that's a true story, but a story that is truth, I think of as this is someone's reality. You know, one person's vision of what happened at at some time. So they're both useful. They both have useful information. 
but neither of them are universally true because we're mm-hmm. kind of locked in our own skulls most of the time. Yeah. So we can only really experience reality through our own eyes, through our own experience, through our own memories, except for those times when we somehow feel that we're connected to everything. And then that's when I think the, the, ap- the actual truth comes in, is when you can experience reality from multiple views mm-hmm. because you're part of all of the multiple views of everything and that you know that's not you can't walk around like that all the time yeah you know? so that so i yes yeah, so like where where i like if i know enough about myself to know that if a, if a absurd story emerged in a hypnosis session I would make myself crazy. I would my wheels would spin and spin and spin if I tried to figure out if it was true or not, and I would never be able mm-hmm. to answer that ever. I know that, so I have to take steps back and say, okay, this story has power. You know, the old lady on the side of the trail told me a, a fable, and now I have this fable, and I can. It was me creating the fable out of nothing, maybe, or it was created out of a real life experience, or it was a combination of both—a real life experience turned into a to a fable in its retelling on the hypnosis hypnotherapist's couch but within that story there's a there's a there's a a power that i i would be it would be a mistake to ignore the story but it would also be a mistake to treat it as 100 literal truth i've met people in the ufo community who treat their ufo regression as 100 truth and it might be but i just know enough about myself that i i just i'm i gotta i gotta take some a few steps back so, yeah. Here's yeah. in the story. There's two characters. A little bit of a romance budding there. The two characters are on a swing set in this little town at night. They're kind of walking through the old abandoned elementary school. The town is kind of this this modern ghost town, and it's at night. And they're on the swing set. And then there's these owls that land on the swing set. And Little by little, it generates this this thing. Just the things build and build and build in these owls, and it has an energy which is also based on a real story. <laughs> Not it doesn't happen quite that way, but but uh, the uh, I'll tell that story in a second. But they they both get zapped, and they both pass out. And it's a first person story, so you only get one person's story. He has like this whoa. He like goes into this timeless realm, and he's basically having like a like a mystical out of body experience where he knows everything. Now this is well understood in the not well understood. It's repeated. Nobody understands it, I don't think, but it's repeated over and over again in the lore, where both in the near death experience and the UFO contact experience, someone will be on board a craft and they'll say, yeah, when I was on board the craft, this thing happened, and I was when I was in the presence of the beings, like I knew everything in the world. I knew everything in the universe. I knew it frontwards, backwards, forward. I knew it all. And then they come back to their mortal selves here on the earth and, and they're no longer on the flying saucer, let's say. And then like, well, I, I knew everything in the world, but I can't remember it now. But I remember it. I did know everything in the world. Same mm-hmm. thing happens with near-death experiencers. And I suspect there's any number of, of events, oh, yeah. probably like you know high dosages of mushrooms or something like that. You might tap into this universal knowing. Um, so, But it was two people. And they shared that. They were laying side by side under the swing set, blacked out. They both wake up at the same time. 
one of them scared and runs away and the other one can't catch this person so they kind of like they're separated for for a while in the story and the and the and that was super pivotal so these two people share the same what what amounts to the sh the same near death experience they don't technically die but that kind of other they enter that other realm right and I, I, I was like, I knew I had to write that. That was pivotal to the story. I knew I had to write that. And I was like, I avoided writing that. And then it was one night, I'm like, I'm going to write it tonight. And I just like stayed up all night and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then in the next morning, I like reread what I wrote. And I'm like, you know, some of this is pretty good. And then at the same time, I was like, what did I do? Like, how stupid could I be? Like, I just wrote a story that makes no sense at all, right? Two people, two people having a shared near-death experience like what what a stupid thing so i was just like my heart sank like this whole story depends on something that doesn't make any sense it's absurd and i was at my desk and i just had this thing like oh you need to like i all of a sudden i couldn't keep my eyes open like oh god i need to take a nap and i laid down and took a nap and just boom i was out and I, I like slept hard and then like two hours later i woke up and it was like waking up after a full night's sleep and I'm like wow was i out and I sat down on my computer and I got a message from someone. I'm going to use her name. I'm going to use her real name. She'll be okay with that. I got a message from a woman named Scarlett Heinbuck. And Scarlett Heinbuck contacted me and wanted to be my friend on Facebook. I just, mm -hmm. and I never check Facebook, but there's this thing where all of a sudden I had a little pop up and this person wants to be your friend on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, there's so, I didn't know who it was. And there's so many scams and then bots and fake identities and i just i googled her name she wrote a book about a shared near death experience <laughs> oh, and wow. i was like okay you know that was i mean it was like totally weird like i was in the point of oh the book is right the book is not going to work the i my the, like i made a mistake you, the book is not going you, to work I you took done a nap, I woke up. up, and then it was just like finding the sunblock in the desert. It was uh -huh. like, oh. I was I was about to say the universe threw sunblock at you. Yes, exactly. And, and metaphorically so, and, speaking. And Scarlett and I are since she was she read the book, she loved the book. She's wonderful and her book is marvelous. Here, I'm gonna grab the book. You got a second here, just fill the I gotta remember. Sure. Sure. And while he's grabbing the book, I'll just uh make mention that uh it it i'm back the two back. owls there's another owl in the in the in your novel right say one more time there's, there's another owl in your novel it's not just oh there's the lots ones. of owls there's seven yeah <laughs> i counted seven, seven. there's seven. seven there's seven owls yeah okay so so, the, so there's one of them's of a, one of them's one of them's a petroglyph yes Okay, so her book is called We Met on the Other Side, A True Love Story. And so she, she I'll just, I'll give it away. But she, she did Reiki. She was a Reiki therapist. And a, a woman contacted her at a meeting. She just met this woman. And the woman, she got in a conversation. And the woman said, my son is dying. And I'm here to say goodbye to him. And... And he's in the hospital. And I said, I could, she said, I could provide some comfort with Reiki. Is that okay if I do that? And she said, yes, that would be, I would. She asked permission of the mother and then went to the hospital. And this man was lying in the hospital bed. She couldn't see his face. He was bandaged up. 
not bandaged up, but he had like things up his nose and his eyes were taped shut and he had a thing for breathing. And, and so she, and he had a, and so she couldn't even see the person to, for any meaningful way. And she held his hand. Um, there's a little bit more to this, but she held his, held his hand and gave him Reiki energy. And then poof, she's vaulted out of her body. And she's in this other realm that she describes so beautifully, this like sparkling realm of every little sparkle and pinpoint of a light is like eternal, monumental, unending love. And she's swirling in these sparkles. just. And then she sees this guy basically that she recognizes. Like, I know this guy. He's going into the light and they grab. she grabs his hand. It's the guy she's holding his hand on the bed. He's going into the light. And it, it, goes, it goes, there's more to it than that, but... And probably doing a poor job of recounting it, but she had never met him before. When he he had had kidney failure, his kidneys that was he was dying because of kidney failure. His kidneys shortly thereafter, his kidneys came back to one hundred percent health, and mm. they've been married for over ten years now. So that's amazing. It's a beautiful story, yeah. So that was the woman who contacted me at that point, yeah. Well, I, having read the book, it, it does work. You know, the way that you wrote it, two people having the same thing. You just needed to, the universe needed to tell you, no, stop, don't rewrite it, don't. Yeah, trust yourself, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the quandary of the writing process in a way is the insecurity of like, am I onto something? I mean, I think that's what, you know, like that was tough for me to be like. Yeah. Oh, here's it. So, so I said it before. Like the first half is the internal drama, or the internal dialogue, from John, and the part two is the detective novel. So I, I I used it over and over again. I said this Raymond Chandler. Have you read Raymond Chandler books? Yeah. He, yeah. Oh, yeah. So oh my word, I loved those books for. And I just re- reread uh, the Long Goodbye recently, and again after probably my third time. And uh, so I was, I was, like I really traced it all i was like chandler always oh, if i'm going to like have a fallback mode it's raymond chandler and um i just found out so raymond chandler worked in hollywood and he did a lot of script writing mm-hmm. and it's you know he would he would raymond chandler did a movie he wrote the script for a movie called the unseen interesting <laughs> i was That's like really uh, interesting so that was like you know that was like you know 30 years before i was born he wrote this he wrote the screenplay for this thing and 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 i'm and i was totally working on this book called the unseen thinking like oh i'm gonna this is my this is just oh my inspiration my a lot of the second part two is in dialogue people having dialogue this right. rat tat dialogue back and forth and in and and it feels like a detective people where you're kind of like eh, that person's holding something back and then he like then and, and the character knows it so it's really chandler esque it's not as flowery and pulpy and kind of and uh well as 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 chandler is you yeah know, it's not as film noir exactly yes it's a little you know, more it's... it's a little more i wanted to feel real in a way where chandler's dialogue feels like that magical Hollywood noir kind of feel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the second part where it's it's a detective story, you have all of this talking, whereas in the first, you know, quarter of the book in part one, 
barely any talking. A little you bit, know, but there's barely any. A little Where, bit. Even John, and is, he, the character John yeah. is kind of he trapped in his have own. This, yeah, he doesn't have this internal dialogue that he's like talking with himself. That, I found that interesting because I always talk to myself all the time. And I also talk to things, you know, like not just people and, and animals, but, you know, I'll talk to plants and stoves and, yeah. you know, whatever it is I'm working with, I talk to it. And it was really interesting to have that minimal understanding of what's going on. You, I mean, you know what's going on because, you know, he, ta- he sees things, he experiences feelings, he has, you know, sensory input, you know things are happening, he's walking, you know where he's, well, no, you don't know where he's going and neither does he, but he keeps going. And neither going did I there. as a writer at points too, yeah, so... And I thought it was so funny. I'm not going to say where he where he ends up, but he ends up in this town. But you know, he he walked a state away. <laughs> you know, he he walked into another state. And you know, I always made the joke when I lived in Providence, Rhode Island, that you could accidentally turn around and walk into another state in you know 20 minutes and not know that you did it. You know, so when he walked into another state and I read it, I cracked up. Because I was like, he wasn't even starting in Rhode Island. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> he, he, he... He worked hard. <laughs> yeah. Mythically, he was... I based the town it begins on. I don't use the name of the town, but it's Taos, New Mexico. And it's mm-hmm. a little more... It's it's sort of like Taos. Taos is a little more of a mountain town where there's pinion pines and stuff like that, where the yeah. town is a little bit more... There's a little more Red Rocks-ish. But it was sort of the main street of the Pueblo part of... Taos, New Mexico is kind of what I based the, the town on. And um, and that's only in the first few pages. He's out of there before mm-hmm. you're on page Oh, 10. yeah. He, he doesn't stay long <laughs> enough. And and uh, uh, and then this, but he goes, to, he ends up in Utah. And there's this mm-hmm. magical part of like Southern Utah with all the, I always refer to it as the location where they shot the Roadrunner cartoons, um, mm-hmm. that part of Southern Utah. And um and he kind of asks, he sees a license plate in a car. And he's like, well, there's a Utah plate. Well, there's another Utah plate. And he asks the guy, somebody, am I in Utah? And the guy says, you're in the loneliest part of the, this, the loneliest corner of the state. Yeah, so. Yeah. And the end. I was waiting later, for the word Later on, there is a sort of explanation or whatever. It is, he, it's. It's left. it's left unsaid early on in the story. But later on in the book, there's a little bit of a dialogue where. It comes out where, like, eh, like he he expresses like that should not have happened, and and you recognize mm. right away that like something more powerful took place in the desert than just just walking from point A to point B. Yeah. 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 Well, you have little hints of it. You know, it, it's in there if you're if you're paying attention. I, I it's tried something other than yeah, but you don't say it outright. A couple people read the book twice. And got back to me. They basically finished it, went back to page one and read it again. And and then they asked the really good questions. They were like, oh, this and this, right, right? Was that this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. So if, if there's something weird in there, I did my best to sort of, like somewhere in the book, there's a sentence or two that will, it might be 100 pages separated, but there's a sentence or two that'll explain it. At the end, when I was working on the first really the first go round of the i mean the book was felt like it was 
the, the book was essentially done. And I, and at the end of the book, like within the, it was like literally on the last three pages, I wrote what would have been about a page and a half where I explained everything. The internal dialogue of John is just, I explained everything in the book. I said, here's what happened this time. Here's what happened then. Here's the conversation that took place in this mystical other realm. Here's what happened, you know, through sheer force of psychic will. And it just, and I explained. So every single question that a reader possibly could have had gets answered in a page and a half. And I, I said, right now I pulled it off. And then I reread it. It did not work at all. It was it was awful. It sucked the mystery out of a mystery. And it was like, ooh, this doesn't work at all. And so I pulled it out. I just nixed it. <clears throat> There's a point in the last 20 pages, I'll say, where one character, the character John talks to another character, and I'm not going to give anything away, but he says, there were some people who wanted a treasure. It's told as sort of a fable. The guy listening doesn't has no idea what he's saying. There was some men who wanted a treasure, and I didn't let him have it. It's a little more elaborate than that, but that was, in two sentences, summed up what I tried to say in, in two pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you took that out. Oh, I had to. It was um, awful. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, yeah. That's that. That would have not been the right writing choice at all especially with the mysteriousness and the 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 descriptive mystery that you had put in there and you you wrote it sparely you didn't like get all like linguistically fancified it was very very simply written you know nobody has to be like looking up words or anything, but it was still eloquent and elegant in its simplicity. And to me, that's the beauty of the desert is spareness. Mm -hmm. Like there's not, there's not big forests of trees covering all the rocks. You see the rocks and you see the lines of the rocks and you see the elegant line of the hills and the, you know, the, Sometimes the sky, you look up and you're like, it's just that very pale blue because of this, the brightness of the sun and the reflection of the sun off the sand. And, and it's like, oh, it's just that pale blue. But then you look at it and you realize there's more to it than that, that there's a pearlescence to it. And you look at the different forms of the cactus. It's just, to me, you can see the detail more easily I mean, I guess if you really look at it. I mean, some people, I guess, just drive by and go, eh, it's a desert. Eh. And I'm not like that. Um, but the way you described it is the way, to me, the desert would describe itself mm-hmm. if it had words. Mm-hmm. And there was a documentary about um, Ernest Hemingway. Ken Burns did a documentary about Ernest Hemingway a few years ago. And there was a scene in the documentary. So it's so it's a like Ken Burns has these very thoughtful, moving images. So the, mm-hmm. so the camera's moving down over a single page of typewritten paper. And it's it's would be Ernest Hemingway's first draft. And they used a little in the draft had um Ernest Hemingway's handwritten notes 
on the double-spaced typewritten uh, first draft. And, and there was a red pen, and there must have been a computer effect, right? They obviously just erased the, the thing and then put it back in and had the little pen noise as the pen is touching the page as the little notes appear. So you're seeing a sentence, and you see a little line strike through a big, long word, and it writes a shorter word in like his handwriting. Mm-hmm. And the page goes down, and then there's like two adjectives, and it strikes one and just leaves one adjective. And that just scrolled down. It was such a subtle little thing. And I think that Ernest Hemingway called it, like, I think he called it ice box or ice cube writing. You mm. know, like, like ice cold. And, and, and that was such an inspiration to me. So I bet you, I, I have said I've spent a year. That's not right. But I spent many months reading, rereading, 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 rereading the manuscript with that. I'm using a computer, so I didn't use a red pen. But metaphorically, I was like, no, I can get away without that adjective. No, I can get away without that that, mm-hmm. that flowery word. I, there's one point the word desiccated is used. He's talking about he's a painter, so he paints a sign for the store. So he paints the storefront at the store on this main street of this town. And, and he said the wood, like he's painting this old wood. He said, it's really wonderful to paint this old dry wood. It just takes the paint so beautifully and he and i had i had used dry i had used bleached i had used baked i had used every single adjective to describe dries and something dry so so i was like how to describe this wood i used the word desiccated i bet you i spent two hours like looking in in thesauruses for a different word than desiccated and i was like there's no other word i got i'm stuck with it like i get desic no, desiccated that's a four syllable word i could i wish i could have just said dry but i had said dry like up and down that same paragraph in other ways so that was so what you, so thank you that was not by accident that there was a sparse simple quality to it because i i wanted i wanted i didn't want to Mm, I wanted. They kept on saying, "I want this to. I wanted it to be candy, right?" So you would put it on your tongue, and it would, it would just like just be sweet on your tongue. I didn't want. I didn't want it to be chewy. I didn't want to have anyone. I had to really bite to get into the story. I just wanted right. it to melt on your tongue, and I, that was a thousand percent on purpose. Yeah. So, yeah. So you you saw that you were very aware of what I was trying to do in the writing process. Yeah. And and about desiccated. When you pare away most of the syllables throughout your manuscript, throughout your story, and then you put one of those words in, the impact is very, very strong. And it it gives, desiccated isn't just a look, but it's a feel. And because of the way the word itself sounds, desiccated, desiccate it's a good word um you hear it too like you can hear the flakes of old paint coming off in a strong wind you can you can imagine the gray color of the wood underneath the old peeled paint you know you can see holes in the in the wood it's so dry it started to split in places and any place where an insect had bored into the bare wood, there'd be these little holes. So you get all this texture in one word. 
<laughs> so it's when you do it sparingly, it it jumps out and it gives this whole uh just a a, a big mass of of meaning and understanding. Mm-hmm. So I approve of desiccated. It's a good word. Okay, well, those two hours were well spent because it has kept it in. So, <laughs> yeah, that would have sucked. You know, two hours put in desiccated. Then the next time you read it, go, I hate desiccated. Yeah, I'm not going to leave it in there. Scratch it up, and put dry. Yeah. So, but but anyway, <laughs> so that was so I was in a I was in a kind of hypnotic trance in a way for the last few months of the book. I mean, that so, just that just that just I got I got more and more and more urgent. There was a friend of mine who's an astrologist. She's an astrologer. And she said, um, you got to publish this on May 16th. And I kind of looked out like, oh, I'll make it to May 16th. It was right at the end of Mercury or Mercury retrograde ended on May 15th. And 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 she was like, oh, this is the day. Like, just aim for this day. And I'm like, great. And and wow, was it like like. It, it came out beautifully, like in the sense that, like, it all timed out in it. But, it, but I was so focused. You were for the coming last, up like, to the line. Three months of that story of working on that book, yeah. You know, like, just I just got, I, I just that little town. I feel like I knew every pebble on the sidewalk in that little town. Like, what was on down that street? What was down that street? What was behind the main street? You know, where the, where the trail from the foothills? You know, like in you know, went through the gate in the town and stuff. So all of that was just, you know, I saw it so clearly in my mind's eye. Were you haunted by any anything in the book? Did anything start popping up in your dreams or when you're not, not so actually thinking of the book, have it start talking at you or? There you was know. a character named Betty in the story. She originally was called Alice. I changed her name to Betty. There's a reason why I won't tell. I'm not going to tell you that one. That one's a little so. But there's so Betty, like so he arrives in the town. John arrives in the town, and it's like kind of like what's wrong with this town? Why is this? What's like someone's got to like who's the caretaker of the story of this town? Mm-hmm. And he find, and it's Betty. Betty's the caretaker of the story of the town, and the the town. This is funny because I I I know people who live in or who spend a lot of time in in what would amount to that area of the Four Corners area, that area of of southeastern Utah. And uh, there was a, the Colorado River goes through there. And there was, in the story, there's a bridge that fell down. So, right, so if there's a bridge mm-hmm. that, so the town was near the bridge. And when the bridge fell in the 1960s, and I was totally, this was 100% the mothman prophecies that was that was right it was essentially a reworking of the silver bridge so the bridge falls there's some question whether anyone died on the bridge because it's the river nobody knows if there was a death on the bridge and then the um so so that was the reason that this town got abandoned in essence now there's only one road it's basically at the end of the dead end of the road there's a bit of dialogue in the story where John talks to Betty. So Betty, I cried when I wrote Betty's dialogue. And Betty yeah. started out as one character and then she turned into a totally different character that I did not expect at all in the writing process. So, mm-hmm. so like, I loved Betty. I loved Betty. Betty was like, Betty ran the secondhand shop in town and she looked after John when he arrived in town. I'm like, oh, here, like, here's, like, what size shirt do you wear kind of thing? And, and 
so uh there's a he has a conversation with with betty and he says i've been in this town for a while and no one has asked me why i why i came here and how i why no one has asked me what i'm doing in this town and she said oh john this is the end of the road and everyone here knows it nobody mm. would ask you that question and that that little bit of so that and that line could only have been delivered by the character betty the caretaker of the town story and that was so betty was oh god i cried when i wrote some of betty's do you know what asmr tingles are yeah yeah. So there's a thing, there's like a 10 million YouTube videos where people whisper and talk slow or people talk and then and then there's like a, some people are susceptible to it. And I certainly am. I can get these mm -hmm. tingles. When I wrote Betty's dialogue, I would write her dialogue. I would get full body tingles as if I was hearing her voice. Yeah, Betty, if I was haunted by anything, it was Betty. Yeah. And you started out with her in one way that your brain thought she would be, and then oh, knew she I, she was she, just, she was not going to let changed. me go. Yeah, she was. She yeah. wanted. She she forced herself into the story, and then the character uh, Tony at the coffee shop mm -hmm. is one hundred percent Mac Tony's. The are you familiar with Mac Tony's? Mm -hmm. Yes, the crypto yeah. crypto terrestrials. Yeah, so I was pretty good friends with Mactonis. I did the illustrations, the chapter headers for crypto terrestrials. Those are my illustrations in the print book, and um, and he crypto uh, for people who don't know, Mactonis was an author. He wrote a handful of books, and his last book was a UFO book called the Crypto Terrestrials. I think it's like less than hundred pages. This short little book, yeah, beautifully he written. He wasn't quite done with it, as I recall. He, he was, was very close. Was very and, close. And, was, and it was a, some little editing issues where um, where uh, Patrick Weege from Anomalous Books, I think, took took it on himself and and fit it all together as a little puzzle piece. So there was it was all the puzzle pieces were there. He had to he had to make some decisions without Mac's approval. The book is beautiful. It's a short little book. It's also available on audiobooks, which I just realized recently, and I, I have oh, it and nice. I listen to it again. So um, and that was a that was a ooh, that was a tough read for me because I was good friends with him and yeah. and um, I I want to be very careful saying this because I don't want it to come out if it's like too maudlin or anything like that. I spoke often after Mac died, not often, about three or four times, with Mac's mother over the phone after Mac died. I did, I just called her up and and reached out to her and. Um, do you know the pictures of Mac Tony? He's got a black leather jacket. Yeah. In some pictures. His mother yeah. sent me that jacket. It fits me perfectly. Oh, oh, oh. I can I almost never wear it. It's too sacred. And yeah. it fits me perfectly. And and so I sent a copy of the book to to his mother, and that was actually a little bit a month or so into it when I'd gotten some feedback. One of the feed one of the pieces of feedback I would get from people. They would say like, oh, your book, I really enjoyed your book. And they would say, I loved Tony in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So Tony Tony is another one who says almost nothing. There's like very, he, he says almost his, nothing in the story. His character comes through in what he does. Yeah. You show Tony, you don't tell Tony. And Tony doesn't tell himself. So 
All yeah. there is and, is how he acts and reacts. And that's, again, my friend Bruce, who, like, lamented, like, oh, that movie. Like, oh, like, the, the guy said everything that he was doing. Why couldn't they just show it at cinema? And I was like, oh, why couldn't I just, like, write the actions rather than the dialogue? Even though there's a lot of dialogue in the in the second half of the book, um, I tried to to be true to that. Just let the let the story tell itself. You don't have to explain the story as you're reading the story. Just the story. Right. If, you, if you tell the story, it explains itself. Yeah. So, but that was a tough. I I put a. You know, I signed that book and wrote a little note in the inside front cover, and that was a really tough one for me to. I mean, he I, he's been gone now. For a long time. Fourteen years. Yeah. So. Yeah. Doesn't seem that long, but no, yeah. no. But that was so that character Tony or Mac Tony's worked at a, is a barista. Mac Tony's loved coffee. There's a, there's a, a coffee romance in the story too. So there's like there's yeah. a love of coffee in this in the story, and that that would traces right back to Mac, who just you know he would he had a website and there was lots of, um, you know the latte art where they would pour the yeah the, the milk right. the steam milk and the foam milk and Mac could do that and would would his his blog had all kinds of coffee references and you know people like little there's the early days of youtube there was lots of videos of people doing coffee art like that and he would put that on his site so some of the coffee art things traced right back to um to uh i mean that was mac basically just yeah referencing his his love of coffee and his time as a barista that's interesting you know, when when John, you know, hauls off and stomps off into the desert, he was fed up with art, right? He yeah. he didn't he didn't want to make those paintings anymore, and he started making different paintings, but nobody nobody liked them really, you know. Oh, that's right. And, you caught that, yeah. That was that because it, it opens at the art uh yeah opening, yeah yeah. Yeah, so he has a new new style, a new vision, but nobody went there with him. <laughs> nobody wanted it, and yeah, so he's fed up, and you know he he looked at his at his studio and he didn't like it, so he goes stomping off, and then he you know finds this little town and finds this coffee shop, and the dude who makes the coffee tony there's art in the milk you know and mm -hmm. it's right there and then he starts doing little things he starts painting signs for the town he's you know he's, he goes back to doing art again and it's not anything like those huge canvases that everybody liked but he didn't you know, and as an artist, there's nothing worse than doing something that everybody likes, but you don't, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. that's, that's soul ripping. That's terrible. Um, you know, why don't you paint another one like that? Well, you know, I've painted that one 15 times. Thank you. That's why. Well, he says it. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he says it right up there. And then later on the story. So yeah, so that, that was the painting the town is like the, the signs for the town that was Woody Guthrie like Woody Guthrie yeah. was a sign painter and so I just like I just wanted him to have this kind of like wandering hobo just shows up in the town and just paints the 
the thing. Oh, and then he does the chalkboard at the coffee shop. I yep. forgot about that. You know, yep. what was really funny when I read the, I kind of make like, you kind of get so ingrained in the story and you write and write and write and then you stream, streamline it down. I was so shocked when I went back and reread it from beginning to end, the book. Like, mm. Wow, this happens fast. Oh, yeah. Like, 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 like he's in the coffee shop and the, I think it was like the first or second, the first day he's working in the shop, first or second day, he, he, he redoes the chalkboard. And, well, it was and that was kind of an yeah. Well, it was Tony was it was like Tony's handwriting was sloppy compared. John's handwriting was beautiful, mm-hmm. and you know he's an artist, and so he had nice handwriting. And and uh, but that was it. Just shocked me so the how 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 quick it moved when I read it the second when I actually sat down and read it from beginning to end. Like oh my word! And I just like. In my mind, it was like, oh, he had been in the town for weeks before he did the coffee shop chalkboard. And see, I liked that he just he just hauled off and did like he hauled off and walked into the desert for you know as far as the reader knows, no good reason. You know, he just decides I'm going to do this. Then he shows up in this town, and everyone is taking care of him, and so he immediately starts giving back. And that was how I saw it. It it was Mm -hmm. it was. A beautiful reciprocity. He didn't say anything. They didn't say anything. It just happened. And and then it reconnected him with art. Yeah. And that was in so and that's the West too, in a way. Or maybe mm-hmm. let's say the lost West. Um, or the fable of the West, let's say. You know, like if yeah. you wrote a story about, you know, someone in Oh well there, yeah, well, Joshua Kutchin's story takes place much of it in, in rural uh, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Right, so people are talking, 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 Same and thing. everyone's gabby, and they got a lot of slang, and it's, it's this rat tat tat to the dialogue, and and this was exactly the opposite, where everyone's kind of these you know Westerners, these soft spoken, mm-hmm. silent types, and and that was a sort of a nod to the to the to the cinema of westerns, mm-hmm. and that there's a couple scenes, there's a couple scenes, there's one scene where the character Tony drops John and a friend off at a point on the highway. And that was like 100% a Western. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I I went to film school in New York and I saw, oh, like hundreds of Westerns on the big screen in the repertory theaters back in the 80s. And I wanted, I, I actually, before I wrote that scene, I just had it written down on a, the, basically it was written down on an outline that was on my computer, but it was essentially like the four by five card said, you know, Western goodbye, mm-hmm. Western movie goodbye, and that's how I pictured it. And that's in it. And I'm really happy with that. I snuck those homages into the to yeah. the story. Yeah, the way <laughs> the the specific Western that it called to mind for me, it's not an obvious one of them. Because there's no kid there, but it was Shane oh, at the yeah. end of oh, yeah, the yeah. movie Shane when Joey, you know, runs after him and tries to get him to come back and tries to call him back. And, and his mother says, he's not going to come back. There's no that, place. Yeah. And that was exactly what I thought of that. You know, it's like the invisible Joey was there and Tony knew better than to, 
you know, come back. I'm he, gonna, he was, so, yeah. My was, sister asked some questions yeah. about the, so after my sister read it, she was like, I love the book. I, it should be a big, great movie. She's like, oh, I loved it. I love the characters, and but but I didn't understand it. It's like, that's okay. If you love the characters, that's enough. That's all. That was what it's like. She said, what about this yeah. scene? And like, why did this, why did this, this, this? And I said, my sister's name is Jeannie. She was asked a couple questions. Like, why did, th- I don't understand. It's like, Jeannie, he wasn't coming back. And she went, yeah. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. like, like, I don't want to give anything away, but like, you don't need to, you like, it's, it, I feel like. I want to be careful how I say this. I try to saturate certain points of the story, just like sat without saying it. I tried to saturate it with that sense of impending doom. Yeah. And I don't know if, if it was. I mean, it was. It was there. there. Yeah. Yeah. It was oh, and there. then at the first five minutes or the first three pages of the story, you know how the movie ends. I called. I keep on calling it a movie. I saw it in my mind as a mind as a movie. At the first I was three pages say, of the you, story. Yeah. You you know. What's going to happen to John? So I'm not giving anything away by saying that. So. Well, it, <laughs> when you say that you saw it as a, a film in your head and you wrote it down, that's how I I write visually that way. Mm. Um, so I, I understand that. And hey, we're in good company. Ray Bradbury wrote that way. So, you know, I have no complaints. And I, I see the world through the eye of cinema more than I see my the world through the eye of, of literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my daydreams yeah. are cinematic. They're not. They're not. You know, well spoken. I mean, I don't. See, I don't. My daydreams aren't in dialogue. They're in visuals. So yeah. Yeah, that's the same. That's the same with me. Um, my husband Zach writes the exact opposite way. He he's a master of dialogue, which is why we work together. Uh, <laughs> So you you can always tell which parts one person wrote because of, you know, if you have this not quite Jane Austen-esque but similar dialogue, well, that was likely not me. (laughs) (laughs) But if you have an action sequence with, you know, all kinds of wind blowing and, you know, leaves blowing and, yeah creepy sounds of rattling tree branches yeah that's that's probably me yeah. okay that's the that's the that's weathering heights rather yeah. than jane austen yeah oh my god weathering heights so <laughs> fox is he's the senior year and they're reading weathering heights <laughs> and he was like, what is wrong with them? <laughs> <laughs> they need therapy. I said, Sigmund Freud is a baby at this point. He hasn't, yeah. he hasn't yeah. gotten a chance, you know. And Jung is even farther away. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, there was oh. no such thing as therapy. Yeah, there was alcohol back then, but there was no therapy. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's why there was alcohol. <laughs> There had to be. But he was like, oh, my God. And my husband said, did you get to the second book, the second part? And he said, no. And and he he said, well, good. That's good. I never read that part. I saw what was coming and said, nope. 
Oh, so we had these oblique discussions about Wuthering Heights, and and I said, do, "Did you do you have to read any Jane Austen for this year?" And he was like, "No." And I'm like, ah, "If you're gonna have to read Wuthering Heights, you should at least have to read Pride and Prejudice." Yeah, I've never Much read better. Pride and Prejudice. Have you seen a film of it? No, actually, I've seen little clips Honestly, of things, but never yeah. If you if you watch a film, you'll get the story, and then when you try to read it, you can see the the storyline that's going to go through her her dialogue. I tried to read it for years, and I couldn't get through it. But when I watched the film that has um, uh, what's her name, Kira, Kira Knightley? Knightley, yeah, yeah, it has her in it. Um, I I got it. And then so when I picked it up to read it, I knew that we were going to get somewhere and then I could just love the dialogue. And she was such a satirist. And, you know, she was writing about serious stuff. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's a love story. It's a romance. But it's also about uh, women at that time period. Mm-hmm. If you didn't get a husband, you were screwed. Yeah. So, you know... What do you do? So she satirizes that, and and it's just really good. So be cinematic, watch the film, and then then you can read the book. Good. And it it won't be it won't be. Where is it going? <laughs> what are you doing? Well, there was def- that was my fear when I was writing this. My own story was like there would the, the the reader would be like, "What is going on? Where is this going?" And I, like each individual scene felt like it worked and I just couldn't I couldn't trust that when they were all put together it would it would flow as a story you know the the but the feedback I've gotten it's really interesting because if you read the 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 reviews the written reviews on Amazon like people got it people were like oh yeah. they were they were very clearly like I knew what I was trying to express this kind of haunted mm-hmm. mystical fable almost yeah where where an unreal mythic story is challenging real people and they have to have like real dialogue yeah. about what's happening yeah so that was that was that was my sort of internal challenge to like capture that well and it's a mythic story that has a a visual language to it because you did utilize the whole myth of the old west in in the way that it was you know you described it and then there's a ghost town and you know it's it's a damsel very taciturn damsel in distress taciturn people and you get that whole idea of this is a myth this is a myth but then it's very realistic and so then if, you know, your brain starts to, well, okay, I'm reading so fast that my brain doesn't really start to do anything until I have to sit the book down to go get a drink of water or, you know, whatever. Then it goes, and then I go back to the book and, and I can't think anymore because I'm reading so fast. Uh, but it is really interesting because it challenges our ideas of reality, just like the UFO 
experiences challenge people's ideas and experiences of life before the well they UFO challenge their experiences of what ufo experiences experiences yeah and it does that right? too yeah like the, we have a we have a cartoon kind of comic book idea like the new yorker cartoon of the flying saucer yeah like the the beings in the bedroom yeah like, and but the experience itself is so much more weird than that. Yeah. I talk to people all the time and, and like 90% of what we talk about are, are like powerful synchronicities that yeah. have invaded people's lives. So people who have UFO contact have these powerful UFO experiences. I suspect people who are going through shamanic initiation or people who are like achieving yes. kundalini experiences or, or practicing yoga or meditating a lot would also have synchronicities mm -hmm. so then that means the ufo contact experience so here's a friend of mine this is a story i tell all the time but a friend of mine i wrote an essay one time and a friend of mine was editing the essay and i was talking the essay through with her and i said you know people i was kind of had got on my high horse a little bit and i said you know people who have ufo contact experiences have more synchronicities than joe normal than like Joe Sixpack. And she rolled her eyes and looked at me and she said, you know, that's totally stupid. Anyone on a <clears throat> spiritual path will have more synchronicities than mm -hmm. Joe Normal. And then that's I was true. Like, well, wait a minute. That makes, that means UFO abduction mm -hmm. is a spiritual path. Yes. Like by given that logic. And, and um, when I talk to people, this is actually, I, this was so tough for me to trust. I wrote about it in the first book and I kind of would give examples and, and I would show up in my, and I have, I, I, I do talks, right? So I stand on stage and I got mm -hmm. the PowerPoint presentation and then like people who have UFO experiences and I talk about a guy who had a, saw an owl and then a UFO and then I have a great big slide and I click the slide and it said, and Derek said, all of this led to a spiritual awakening. This is something I hear often. It's spiritual awakening, great big slide. And I was like, I remember I was about to go on stage. It was that day. And I was at a UFO conference. And I was like, what did I get myself into? What did I get myself into? Like, like, is that is that right? The spiritual awakening? People of UFO contact have a spiritual awakening? And I was like, I should take mm -hmm. this out. I had to take this slide out. And I was like thinking, like, it's not a big deal. You just push a button and you push delete and the slide comes out. And as I was contemplating this, like I was visualizing in my mind. All I got to do is, mm -hmm. you know, highlight the frame and Push click the delete and it's gone. Yeah. And and this guy comes up to me and says, Mike, um, you know, hey, I just wanted to say I'm looking forward to your talk. And just, uh, just I had a spiritual awakening that was tied into a UFO contact experience. I'm like, okay, well, let's guess it's staying in. So universe threw I, this guy at me. I can't, yeah. I can't just ignore and that. I've trust, I've trust, I've learned to trust that. Yeah. It's true. It's true. I mean, that's why Alexandra and I did that, that episode that, as I started actually reading lots and lots of of abduction literature, and honestly, I'll, I will tell you why I didn't. I didn't because it creeped me out too much. Oh, it was just but, way too no, no. I didn't need to know that. <laughs> I don't so, want to think about that. So the way I frame this, and I just had this discussion earlier this week. There was a so this is I know I'm going way out on a limb. This is just me kind of speculating. When mm -hmm. you, like a little kid, right, you said, you know, like, can I hear a bedtime story? And like, oh, yeah. So the knight goes down into the cave and there's a dragon in the cave and the knight's trapped down there and the dragon breathes fire on the, and he hides behind his shield and the fire is burning and ah, it's as scary as it gets. 
right? Dragons, mm-hmm. like monsters, fire breathing, trapped in the cave. Like, I there's like there's almost this like like we shouldn't tell kids those scary stories. I'm like, oh no, like bring it on, yeah, and and. So, like, you take a few steps back. I might be 100% wrong, but it's like, if this, if you break this down into a story, wow, it is a scary story. Mm-hmm. But so is the fable you tell the child at bedtime. You yeah. tell them the scariest stuff imaginable. And that's been going on all throughout human history, around the campfire, you know, bedtime. So those, st- so that. Like we want it, we go into the, we go to the movie theater and we see scary stories. We want to be scared when the real life event happens in our lives. I'm sure like this, like Joseph Campbell could speak better to this than I could, or some shamanic elder could speak better to this than I could. But I'm saying that I hear these scary stories. I hear them all the time, and I just have to like, how you doing? Like I'm doing pretty good now. I'm like, but people are traumatized, and, and the oh, trauma yeah. is more of the not knowing. Yes. Than of the, and I'm just like, well, and, if you can just appreciate this as a story, you're, you, you. you and, it's a little, yeah, it's a little easier yeah. to deal with. But it's, it's the first person. It's also, yeah. it's also questioning your sanity. Because, you know, things obviously cannot just walk through your walls, right? Yes. But exactly. you know, you're awake, you know, um, that's, that's part of it. But, the way I feel about it is in the West, we kind of cut ourselves off from the spirits of the world, like the land, the sky, the stones. I'm an animist. I think everything has a divinity within it, has a spirit. Um, so... We cut ourselves off from that, you know, and and once once Catholicism, you know, ruled Western Europe, and then, you know, it was kind of okay because some of that spiritual stuff, spirit stuff, was was allowed to stay. You know, the the Catholic fathers were kind of they were, you know, practical. Well, they're not going to stop talking to the lady over there. And she has a sky blue robe, so we're going to say it's Mary. Okay? Okay. All right. So, Mary. You can have Mary. Mary's there. There you go. There's your mother goddess. Okay. Uh, uh, Okay. And then there's these other um, people. Uh, Okay. They're saints now. They're saints. So, we have that, you know. But then the Reformation came, and the Protestant views just kind of stripped those out and tossed them over the shoulder and said, no, 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 we're not going to have that. And so we stopped talking to spirits. We stopped, you know, the witch trials didn't get nearly as bad until after the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there was heresy and there was, you know, anti-Catholic pogroms and then there was anti-Protestant, I mean, it, it and witches, man, it was all over there, all in a big mess, people killing each other. And literally by the end of, you know, the 18th century, into the 19th century, because of the Enlightenment period, we stopped. We stopped 
seeing divinity in everything. But that doesn't mean the spirits went away. They didn't. Exactly. And that's the, that's the point of the owl, in a way, in the story. Yeah. Yeah. They, they didn't stop. They were still there. We just didn't listen to them. And so, in a way, I think that some of the UFO uh, abduction stories are a hearkening back to and perhaps a recreation of shamanic initiation in the hmm. West because hmm. we, we went, oh, no, 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 we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to see it. We're not going to look at it. It's not there. If we don't look at it, it's not real. It's not real, people. We're not going to do it. But that doesn't mean the spirits didn't want to talk to us. And one of the things that, that having scary things happen to you does is it makes you stop and listen eventually. I mean, it might take a little while. But it does stop you and it makes you listen. Also, when you deny something for several hundred years, they might be a little bit cranky when you finally notice them. I mean, think about it. It's like, mm-hmm. you, you haven't talked to me for 500 years, people. So I'm going to look really scary and I'm going to scare you and that's just going to happen. And I've had people say, well, how can it be shamanic if, you know, some people just, they're, they're terrified and their life goes to ruin and they, they lose their spouses and their homes and sometimes they kill themselves. And I'm like, I didn't say it was nice. I said it was the spirits talking. It doesn't always work out for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. That is the case. Sometimes it just goes wrong. And sometimes it goes right. And what I'm seeing more and more is it seems to be going more right than it was 30 years ago. I'm seeing more people who they have kind of a handle on it. And at least now a lot of them know they're not alone. I know that's a really, really big thing that when it happens, especially if it starts in childhood, you're like, I'm alone. You know, I can't tell mom this. I told her and she said it was a dream. And well, you know, it's not a dream. I don't think it's a dream, you know. And so you grow up and you might tell one friend, but that friend might go, ooh, that's crazy. You know? Kids will say things like that, you know. They they don't they'll just come out and say it. So you learn not to say it to anybody. And now but now it's enough in the consciousness that you can find other people, you know. And it's it's and you find out that there are so many, as you say, variations that they're much more I see them more individualized now. You know, instead of, I've been reading from, you know, I'm reading the older stuff and, you know, catching up, you know. So I'm reading a lot of the older stuff. And some of it is just, you know, this is an individual's experience and it is not the cookie cutter abduction story. There is no cookie cutter abduction story. It's all no, over the map. No, we have this idea that, that, that it is, but it's, it's not. 
And some of those stories, I, I mean, I was reading one and I was like, oh my Lord, if this was 17th century Ireland, you'd be talking to the fairies for sure. Exactly. Or if, <laughs> it, mean, was, if it was South Dakota uh, 300 years ago, you'd be talking to the coyote spirit. Yes. Yes. It's amazing to me that, you know, I can see those threads and, and go, oh, you know, but, maybe UFO abduction is just one variant of the same initiatory experience. It is one you, facet of it. Have you read um, Passport to the Cosmos by Dr. John Mack? <laughs> I haven't gotten to that one yet. That's it's so, on my so shelf. You, Oh, so that book compares and contrasts the ancient shamanic initiation rites to the modern UFO contact experience. It's, 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 in, in, uh, uh, um, Ralph Blumenthal's book, The Biography of, of, uh, oh, it's a of, great book. Of Mac. He's, he basically mm -hmm. says, he kind of laments, like, you know, like, I, I, the best thing I've ever written, and everyone's ignoring it because, because it, you know, like, the book abduction came out and then and it had this huge like uproar and that was in many ways there was a little bit of nuance in there but it was essentially the hypnotherapist talking about mm -hmm. his patients mm -hmm. and, and that was something it's something totally different in passport to the cosmos yeah and I'll that was um, that one in my so that was so that that the, it, and you said it many times so the the and i and i I never said it. Oh, you know, the word shaman shows up twice in the story. Yeah. There's a point in like yeah. the first chapter where he says, wasn't that when you were hanging out with that shaman guy from the reservation? And I said, you know, he, ne he never called himself a shaman. Self, neither did I. Shaman. Yeah. So yeah. that's the only time that I searched it out. I was like, did I say shaman in the book? And I did. And I, and so basically someone says, he's a shaman. And they said, no, he's not. And in a way, the way it's phrased, like you can kind of go, oh yes, he is. Like I wanted that in there. Yeah. Like I've I've talked to people, and so here's what happens: I do this stuff with owls and UFOs, and and I talk to people, and they have they tell me their owl experience, and it's it's not the UFO thing. It's not the UFO owl experience. It's the shamanic owl experience. And I ask, are you a shaman? And most often they'll say, yeah, yeah, I am. I don't tell anyone, but I am. I'm a practicing shaman. And then every once in a while you'll tell, ask someone, are you a shaman? And they'll say, well. That's a rather personal question. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, pff, you are. You are. I know you are. Oh, you so, asked yeah. me, and I said, oh, I don't call myself that. <laughs> but there's a, there's a thing called, there's like a sort of shaman light, right? There's coming, or shaman-like, mm -hmm. right? So you can take a half step back. So there's definitely a shaman character in the story. And and uh, I'm going to give a little, that that's uh, uh, the teachings of Don Juan. Mm -hmm. The character's name is Donnie. I'm not giving anything away. Like anyone should figure this out. So Don, the character of Donnie is Don Juan from the from the Carlos Castaneda books, roughly. That's yeah. how that's. So I was I was like shameless and just like Tony is Mac Tony's and Donnie is Don Juan and there was a couple other things there. Um, I wrote the um, the there was one section. So there's we didn't mention it at all, but there's spies in the story. There's like secret spies, kind oh, of yeah. like non-governmental oh, yeah. spies, and we ne we haven't said that, but they're in the story, and and uh, that's the X Files kind of aspect of it. There was a point when I, like, it's broken into two chapters, and I 
bet you I spent a month with the little, like, okay, if he, if, so, so the character in this small town, the character of John, has to talk to, I called him the James Bond villain, right? So James Bond mm -hmm. villain, you know, like he's in his lair and he's like, uh, he's like super scientist and he's all, you know, he's, he's, you know, I want almost, almost like twirling his mustache in evilness. And I was like, I wasn't interested in that, but I kind of, so he, there's a, he has to talk to the head of the spies and he eventually does sit down and have a long conversation with the head of the spies. And that conversation was required because it, that was the one where it explains a lot. Yes. Yeah. What did this happen? How did this happen? What about this thing that happened long ago? What about this thing that happened yesterday? What? So all these things happen, and there's some hints about remote viewing, and then there's some hints about, you know, the psychic team. That's kind of like. So I kind of wanted it to feel like, like, like some offshoot of the remote viewing program from the early '70s is still alive right. and still active in this way, and and. I, I had a friend of mine read that section and she said, like, I can't figure out if is this guy a good guy or a bad guy. And I'm like, yeah, I wrote it and I don't know. Like, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I was the same guy. way. I'm like, okay, is this dude going to like, is he going to be evil or is he going to be not evil? I bet he's kind of neither. He's kind of in the middle. Yeah, he's not so, good. That, he's not bad. Yeah. He's just different. Well, he's, he's the, he's the, they call him at a certain point, one of the characters says like, like, oh, he just wants to control all the pieces on the chessboard. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. He's kind of manipulative. He's kind of more than kind of manipulative. He's kind of like a master manipulator. Yeah. So, and, uh, but at the same time, I'm like, I had no idea and I still don't. Well, and, then and, you wrote him well, because and, he's not going to reveal either way. Right. Because that he yeah he's if if he's, he's not the not core evil, of the story yeah if he's not evil and he's not good then if he keeps it in the middle there he has options his options are open as to how as well as my options as the author are open exactly yeah so are you are you going to continue the story let let me say I have a, I have, I'm making notes and okay. my notes are getting longer and longer and longer now. I'm like, well, if I do continue the story, like this could happen and this could happen. And, um, I, uh, so I'm living in the, in the, on the Olympic peninsula, right? So there's great big mm -hmm. trees and really, 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 really dense forests in here. And there's this hiking spot. And it's just this little park. It's like one mile by one mile square, but the, it's forest is super dense. So there's this kind of twisty turny. You can get really lost in there and turn around. And I, I, when, when I was writing this book, I would get totally stymied, right? It's a complicated plot where it was like, wait a minute, if this happens here and this person knows this and something happens at the beginning of the story, like, wow, where's this all going? And, and I would, I would go walk in that park, but on the way to the park, I would, I would get, a double latte at the little, it's really good coffee here. Wow, is this coffee culture? I would get a really strong cup of coffee and then just pound it down like a couple miles from the coffee shop to the trailhead or the little drive up thing, the little coffee hut. It's called the, the um, lighthouse coffee. And I would, in the mile and a half or two miles to get to the, to the 
trail i would drink the whole coffee down boom it was in them so i was like fired up and this was work this was 100 like i was going to this with a purpose and it just got better and mm -hmm. better and better and i got really good at it and i would walk with my earbuds in and i would have my phone and i had like a playlist of the songs i wanted to listen to and they were very specific and I would walk and walk and walk and walk and fast and fast and fast. And I was just like, and my mind would be cranking. Well, if John does this and he has this thing and he's got to meet the spy, what does the spy know? Does the spy know this? Does John tell the spy this? Does the... And then I would have this moment. And I would like, oh, 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 this will work. This is going to work. And I would speak into my phone. Right? I'd put the little voice memo thing. I'd speak into my phone. And then I would walk and walk. Wait, oh, oh, oh. But if this this plot point later in the story if this happens and they have the conversation and this weird thing happens and oh it's got to be like this and like i left this question open early and i can answer it here so i would like yep. it was it was one i bet you i did i bet you i have i had 200 voice me memos of me going okay john's got to like you know talk to the to the head of the spies and he's going to say this and then the head of the spy doesn't know it but john realizes he said too much and he's got a backpedal, but the guy is going to catch him. So anyway, all this like that all emerged from music, walking really fast and being totally jacked up on coffee. And so those and I actually put the playlist or uh, uh, 12 songs of the playlist on my blog. Um, and that was in a couple of those songs are really like, wow, did they fit the mood of the story? And um, but that was really a vital part of the of the storytelling have you watched outlander the tv series outlander takes place in scotland and the time yeah. travel and so yeah that that show as silly as it sounds was a really good inspiration because some of the most absurd things take place in that show oh there's, god yes 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 and and they just say it they just say it really fast and they're like there's a point in the story where i can't remember somewhere in the middle of the things there where like the daughter of of Jamie and Claire, or of like, uh, oh, it's actually a Frank. Anyway, so the but she comes back through the time portal, and then the her her boyfriend who wants to marry her comes back through the time portal, and before he can reach the the cabin, like young Ian, which I think is really funny because that just every time they say young Ian, I'm like, that's young Ian. Did that? Did they do that on purpose? Like he's young. No, Ian. probably like, that's not. like. Yeah, I don't think so. So young Ian like thinks he's the bad guy and captures him and then sells him into slavery into the Mohawks. And there's a point where like, you know, and they James drag him up north. Like, yeah, they drag him to, to New York, which is a long freaking way. Like, Let's just ride our horses up to New York from North Carolina. I'm like, whoa. And and so they they uh but there's just one line of dialogue. It's like like where's Brianna's husband to be? And he's like, oh, I, I sold him into slavery to the Mohawks. And I just thought like, <laughs> if they can get away with that, that's like, that's a big stretch. That's a big stretch to ask the audience. And and they did it and it kind of works. And I was like, okay, well I can say whatever I want in this story. If, if they, if yeah. young Ian can sell the Brianna's or Bree's husband into the slavery, into the, to the Mohawks and they can just say yeah. it in the line of, one line of dialogue. I'm like, okay, well, let, so that was a big inspiration for me. I'm like, I guess I can do whatever I want in this story. And so I was really bold in some of the things I tried to do in the story. But, um, and that was a huge thing that Outlander, that Outlander, that, that gave me permission, the absurdity of what they got away with in that story. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it gets more and more strange as it goes on. <laughs> as does, the, the, as book, does the unseen, the, yeah. 
Yeah, and some of the books that 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 show's based on are even weirder than the show. Um, but me, you know, I, I grew up with fantasy and science fiction, and I'm like, you got time travel. Do something else with it. Come on. But they don't. Yeah. <laughs> like, nah. Well, there's uh, some interdimensional travel in this story. and, and the ones, Yes. You know, and there's a, there's a kind of, uh, I want to be very careful what I say. There's a, there's a big crescendo at the end of the story. There's a yes. big event that takes place. Yes. And in my mind that, like, I, I didn't want it to be all, like, in my mind I realized, like, if this is a movie, boy, there would be some cu- computer, there's going to need to be some cu- computer-generated special effects for just this one scene. Yeah. And, and then, uh, and that was, and I, and I tried to not turn it into like a Marvel movie in my mind, if that makes sense. I tried to underplay that little event. It was very personal between three key characters in the story. So, yeah. And I, I liked that, that, you know, you didn't go all gee whiz bang, you know? Um, Yeah. There are times and places to do that. Don't get me wrong. I like a I like a big explo- you know explosion as much as anybody else, but that this would have you would have been subtle, subtle, subtle for the whole book, and then boom. I tried and, to make and, it a subtle boom, boom and yeah, all lowercase letters. Yeah, it was a, it was a smaller. Yeah, so. yeah, it was a smaller boom. It wasn't like the big bang. It was the medium to smaller size bang. <laughs> it mm-hmm. wasn't. It wasn't gigantic. So, is there? We have been talking for over two hours. So, oh, I realize I'm looking at the clock here. Yeah. So, um, oh, go t- on. Tell it. Tell us whatever else you want to tell us. Tell us where people can find the book, um, and find you. And you yeah. could just Google UFO Owl, and I come right up. So you could find me no, that you way. You do. You could just go to the Unseen, which is uh, in. Uh, in um amazon so it's so i self-published it so it's through amazon and it's self-published and uh which was really wonderful because then i could i don't want to like i could i could allow myself to be sort of a control freak over the content right so you if you work right. with a publisher you you give up a lot of that um so uh and i'm re- so let me just say this i am so proud of this book like this book was this book was like i have done this before, right? I worked on illustrations. I did books where I would be an illustrator. I'd work with an author, and then I wrote a camping book ages ago. And 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 what I would do is I would just like, okay, I'm gonna have to turn down work, so I'm gonna put my life on a credit card. And these were camping books. They were pretty simple and streamlined and stuff like that. So I just like, oh, you run a little credit card thing up, and then they get the book royalties, and then you pay that off. And this book, like. No matter how, I'll say I'll be done in, this is back in like 2019 or whatever, like I'll be done in a few months with this book. Well, six months I'll be done. And it turned into more like four years. Well, actually, if you, I mean, it was started out 10 years ago, but I wasn't obviously working on it. But so, so like there was this four year thing of like, I got to finish this book. And I took on some work, but very little, well, very little. So I, I, like it was, how to say this, a friend of mine, I explained it very thoroughly to a friend of mine who's known me for a long time, who read the book and loved it. And this friend of mine, Hunter. And and he was like, 
I sort of said, I had to give up. I had to like surrender to this book. I had to like, like things like, I'm going to say things like eating food mm-hmm. turned into something else. Like I, my diet turned into, we, I live in a place with, we have hens. So I ate eggs, sweet potatoes, brown rice, oatmeal, and not much more for a couple of years. I was like, I'm putting it all into the book. I'm, and as a, as a, so the, the past life regression thing that I start, we started talking about the hypnosis session. Mm-hmm. I was a young artist who was punished for being creative. And I'm like, I'm like, screw it. I'm putting it all out there. I am, I am going to, I'm going to finish this book. If I, if it kills me, if it, if I starve, like I'm, I was basically driving off the cliff. Like there was a point in my, I didn't have enough money to fix the brakes in my car. Like I can't drive. I can't leave the house. I gotta finish. Might this as well write. <laughs> I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat rice and eggs and finish this book. The eggs are free. The hens are in the yard. They were giving me free eggs. And can I just read a little bit here? I think I've sure. got this. Oh yeah, it, it was like it's a. You know what? There's movies in the 1970s. Movies were mm-hmm. allowed to end, like with like a just like this, a, like this lost haunted moment. Like mm-hmm. um, there's a movie called McCabe and Mrs. Miller ended like that. Even Dirty Harry, the original Dirty Harry ends with this yes, thing where did. like all of a sudden right. Clint Eastwood's standing on the dock and he throws his gun and his badge in the water. And that's the end of the story. I'm like, what, where does this come from? But the, and I, and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to end it like that. Um, so one of the, one of the people who works with the spies kind of befriends the character, John, and this woman befriends him. And so there, so John and this woman, who works with the spies and there's a little bit of mystery what she knows and what she doesn't know so like this is john first person john they're standing alone in the out in the in the in near the town they're standing alone in the desert and john says i asked do you talk about this with your team what it all might mean and she says no not like this we walk around it we we talk around it about little parts of it i pressed her what is it? What does it all mean? She said, I don't know, but I know what I feel. She spoke with so much emotion, I thought she might start crying. What do you know that I don't? She says, I'm not sure, but I can say, but I can say this. My team is lost. They have no idea of what to make of me or you. And I don't want to hear any of your I don't know shit because I know you know a lot more than they do. That shut me up. She looked indignant and said, Nobody here has asked you, but I'm asking you now. How did you get to the bottom of that canyon? She stood steady and waited for me to answer, and I could tell she didn't want some play-by-play of me turning left at a big landmark or squirming down some narrow drainage. She was asking something else. I studied her beautiful green eyes and said, I let go. I let go of caring. I let go of my old life. I didn't care if I lived or die. I let go of everything. And how do you feel now? And she said, and how do you feel now? Alive. I spat that word out. I was angry. I was mad at everything that stood between me and a deeper truth. We were connected to something. We were swimming in it. There was a powerful knowing all around us, yet I couldn't tap into it. Yet I couldn't tap into it. Neither of us could. Not fully. 
but it was leading us there, leading us on, guiding us. That passage was about writing the book. That was about the internal process of writing the book. It got, it just got projected right into the story. But that little section, like, I let go of everything. I didn't, I let go of everything. And she says, how do you feel? And I spat back. I, like the character, the main character of the book, and also me, the author, alive. I felt so alive, like just giving myself over to the story. There, so you said, if there's anything more I want to say, yeah, that's what I wanted to there say. There it is. I'm not going to ruin it by saying anything else. <laughs> Good. I might have. I hope I didn't ruin it by giving that away. But that was that's no, that's the, that's the type of dialogue that. that shows up in part two you know, of the story. No, that's a it's it's very very uh, tingly. That's a tingly line there at the end. I like it. We're swimming in it. It's all around us. It's in our environment. It's 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 touching us. We're touching it, but. We don't know what it is yet. I love yeah, exactly. that. Exactly, and I that's creativity. That. That's the creative process too. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's interesting because uh, it's very clear that this is about a creative person who just doesn't know what to create anymore, or how, or doesn't know if he wants to. But you know what I've come to understand is creative people have to create they just mm -hmm, there, mm -hmm. there's a a compulsion uh, authors have to write stories they just do fiction authors will get a story in their head or a character in their head and it doesn't let go until it's on the page so exactly uh, yeah yeah well, thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you. Was, uh, the, the conversation strayed all over the place, and it was wonderful to talk about just creativity and this, the mysteries of, of the human experience. And then just, yeah, so that, that was, and, and thank you, because I kind of, like, I was, I wanted to talk, because I knew you worked hard with Joshua. I wanted you to read this book, and I wanted to then talk with you about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great, and I am going to read it again because I, when I read Turbocharged, you know, sometimes I will, my brain is so intent on, you know, finding out what happens. It will, you know, kind of go, I'm just going to go past that, that one word there that's probably very important, but I'm going to go past it. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. So I'll have to turn around and read it again. I'll... It, it won't take me, you know, very long because I can pay attention. I can slow down and pay attention to all of the little details. And then, you know, I can use that as a, as a rest from research I'm doing right now. So, And, 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 and I, I said this earlier, but I did my very best. If there was some unanswerable oddity somewhere in the story, somewhere, somewhere else in the story, is either an answer or a, or a really strong clue to why or what that might mean. So it's in right. there. And, and I try, oh, I work to make it as subtle and soft and whispery as I could. So very little hits you over the head in this book. 
Oh and, no, there's not a lot yeah. of head hitting. Yeah. It's 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 way more um ineffable than that. There's a several dollar word. Good. Good. So is desiccated, yeah. So Yeah. <laughs> Ineffably desiccated. All right. Thank you so much. And this was a delight. Thank you. Was great. And of course, you're always welcome back. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.